and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. This morning, as we move into this next section of the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, it gives you an outline. Verse uh, 19 of the first chapter says that John is going to get a vision of the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come, okay? And so we have been dealing primarily with uh, the things which were and the things that are at John's time, and we're moving into, in this chapter, the, uh, uh, the, the part of serious prophecy for the future, okay? And so that's what we're looking at in chapters 6 through 19, are future events from John's time, um, and uh, this is also an area of scripture that there are basically four main views that different theologians and churches uh, will have and teach, okay? I'm going to go over three of them. They're on your handout. So if you, you grab your handout and flip that thing over, I want to go over three of these with you. Um, and my point behind doing this is not for you to, it says at the top, right, uh, theological camps regarding the end times. Um, my point isn't for you to pick a camp and then fight against people in different camps. Um, my point isn't to tell you what my camp is so that I can tell you your camp is wrong. Um, what, I, what I do want to do with this is let you understand that there are, you as, as believers in Jesus, there are people who love the Lord Jesus and have different views on the end times than you and I might have. You might disagree with me um, on how the end times work. And, and so my point behind this is have some understanding of, of different viewpoints um, and then like, don't fight about these things. I am 100% certain that Jesus did not give John this vision so we could fight with each other. I know that's not why he gave it to us. Um, and so uh, I kind of want to help us focus on the right things. So one of the views, uh, all millennialists believe that we are currently living in a realized millennial kingdom uh, the, and that the thousand year reign of Christ in Revelation 20 is figurative, not literal. So we, we currently live in the kingdom of God and that the thousand year reign of Jesus in Revelation 20 is figurative, not literal. Satan is currently bound, allowing the gospel, the gospel to prosper, but not powerless in persecuting the church. Prior to Jesus' return, Satan will deceive the nations intensely, and evil will reach levels like that of the days of Noah. Uh, Christians await the bodily return of Jesus, which will bring an end to all suffering as the church has replaced Israel and the promises to Abraham and David are fulfilled through the church. So that's one of the major views that you'll, you'll run into. Uh, that's held by a lot of mainline denominational churches as well as a lot of the churches that came out of the Reformation. Okay? Postmillennialists agree in the thousand-year reign uh, of Jesus as a figurative thing and that Satan is currently bound but not powerless. They also agree on the timing of final events with millennialists. The main difference is that they believe in a gradual end to suffering as the gospel increases prosperity and gains influence over the nations. This time is the realized millennial reign of Jesus that will usher in his return. The world will eventually be Christianized and Christ will return at that point. Uh, that is a view that is um, very prominent in the Catholic Church um, as well as some other mainline denominations. 
Premillennialists believe that we await the literal thousand-year reign of Jesus from David's throne on Jerusalem. They believe that Daniel 9 lays out a time frame, time frame to understand the end times and that a seven-year period is explained in the chapters that we're going to go through, Revelation 6 through 19. This time is broken into 3.5 years of peace under the Antichrist. He will unite people. Um, he will be a very charismatic leader that will cause the nations to join underneath his rule um, and follow him. And then he's going to break that peace and there will be 3.5 years of great tribulation as the Antichrist breaks covenant with the nation of Israel in particular. During this time God is fulfilling promises made to the nation of Israel. Satan acts powerfully in intense persecution of Jewish people in an attempt to keep God's promises from happening. The church is absent from this time period under this view as it is raptured or caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and removed from experiencing God's wrath on earth. God operates in covenant with Israel during the time of the great tribulation as they see and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. The great tribulation ends with the judgment of Babylon, which is an icon for the world system. Jesus' uh, second coming and his thousand year reign on earth then follows. Okay, So those are three of the main viewpoints. There's a fourth one uh, that views, uh, and I'm not going to go into it in detail, but there's a fourth one that views uh, the events of Revelation 6 through 19 as historical events that took place in the first and second century. Um, if you want to know more about these views. There's a really great book called Revelation 4 Views by Steve Gregg and he doesn't just cover the four views but he tells you in every passage of Revelation this is what the four views are for this particular passage. And it's it's enlightening to read um, and it gives you an understanding that all of these are very logical viewpoints on the scripture. They have slightly different approach to the scripture but they're all very uh, they're, they're based in good study of the scripture. Um, and, uh, th and then he'll go into a little bit of how the church history impacts those views as well. I think the other thing that we look at here, the common thread, is that all views believe that Jesus is the Christ who has taken away the sin of the world through his death, burial, and resurrection that literally took place some 2,000 years ago. All views af affirm the deity, humanity, virgin birth, miracles, and sinlessness of Jesus. All affirm the inspiration and authority of Scripture on matters of truth, morality, and ethics. All views maintain orthodox Christian views of the triune nature of God, salvation, justification, sanctification, redemption, and restoration. The view of the timing of restoration is understood differently, but the, but the actual restoration is actually the same, okay? Um, in short, on matters of first importance, each view does not disqualify itself. Um, views that would disqualify themselves would deny the deity of Jesus, they would deny his sinlessness, they would deny his humanity, they would deny the inspiration and authority of scripture, they would tell us that we have to work our way to God, that salvation is based on our effort and not grace. None of these things do that, okay? And so what you might ask is if end time study of not of, is of not of first importance, why do so? And so the answer is that every Bible passage about Christ's return is given to motivate obedience. As we understand that there is a king who is coming, we should live our lives in a way that is obedient and honors him. Uh, it should also give us hope that when he returns, when Christ returns, he is going to wipe out sin and evil and death and tears. These things will be no more as he uh, eradicates them from the earth and separates them from his presence. Um, it should also lead us to repentance. If you do not 
not know Jesus as Lord, as we go through this passage, I want you to see that God is very serious about the judgment of sin. I also want you to understand that as we look at this passage, this is, these are things that are going to happen to people who do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But he has a way out. Like, like you and I, we don't have to experience God's wrath, his hatred of sin. Because what God has done for us is his son Jesus went to the cross to take God's wrath off of us. He gave us the mercy of withholding the punishment that we were due so that it would be paid out on his son. Like Jesus took God's wrath for us so that we don't have to experience it. And he rose from the dead to give us new life, make us new creations, and cause us to be his ambassadors that would proclaim that Jesus is the true Savior, the true Messiah, the only one who can give you life and unity, peace with God. Like, he wants you to have that. He doesn't want you to experience wrath. His will is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And the only reason he's slow to return is because he wants to give you the opportunity to believe that Jesus is your Savior and trust him. And so as we go through this passage and this portion of the book of Revelation, I'm going to approach it from the premillennial view. I'm going to look at these things as future events that will take place down the road. But I also think there are things that we can learn from the other viewpoints, okay? Um, and I think it's also important for us to recognize, uh, I'm going to do this in, in as balanced as a fashion as I can while being in, a, in, the, in the premillennial viewpoint, okay? Um, I'm not going to make... Uh, conjecture or guess who the Antichrist is. I really don't know. Um, and I'm not going to try to guess. I'm not going to guess at who, what nations God is going to use in order to cause this judgment to happen. Um, I don't really see a lot of benefit in doing that. Um, but what I do want us to do is look at this and go, God is going to return. God is going to deal with sin once and for all. He's going to wipe it out. His wrath will be poured out on, uh, on sin. Those of us who are saved by Jesus Christ will not experience that wrath, and instead, we might experience persecution. One of the things we're going to see is that if you're faithful to Jesus, you're not going to experience his wrath, but you will experience persecution from the world system and the devil. Like, that's going to happen in in the church age. That's going to happen um, during the Great Tribulation. That, that is going to continue to be part of following Jesus um, until he returns, and then that is done away with, okay? Um, so, so those are things to look at as we go through this. Um, on a transition from, from background and theological views uh, to the passage here. And um, for me, this was, this week, um, it was a strong reminder that the world is not as it should be. Um, uh, it was a week for me of walking with people through pain and loss, um, confusion about the past, um, should I have done this differently? Should I have done that differently? Uh, uncertainty about the future. What's going to happen with this person that I really love and care about? Uh, and these are good, uh, Jesus-loving people that are going through serious pain and loss. Um, and I know that illness and death are part of this life, but, but I don't like it. Um, I know that that's not how God designed things in the beginning. Um, I know that sin has corrupted not just us as the image bearers of God, but the whole creation is fallen and groans with us for God to restore the earth to his original Edenic design. 
Uh, I know that Jesus' return has uh, been promised and that he's going to remove evil and sin and illness and crying and death and all these things are going to be removed from the earth. I guess, I guess my problem as I went through this week is that if I were God, I'd have done it already. Um, and that's what many people struggle with when we see loved ones go through pain or experience loss. Um, it's especially hard when, when illness and death hit the young. Uh, we feel cheated at the loss of a young mother, a cancer in a child, a family member who's lost to addiction, maybe a parent who didn't get to meet their grandchildren, maybe a grandparent who loses their co cognitive function. We, we look at these things and we know it's not right and it causes us to question the goodness of God. Um, and, and this week I saw people hurt um, last week, I saw—I mean, a, a, a person shared with me a, a, a family member that committed suicide. Um, our community lost a teacher to suicide. Um, there's a family going through just a tremendous amount of grief um, because of the choices of one of their children. Um, uh, a friend that uh, a student that went through the youth group shared on she's grown up now and married she shared on on uh, social media uh, the story of her miscarriage um, the grandparent who loses their cognitive function. My, my wife, Becky, her, her grandfather was one of the most intelligent people I'd ever met. Um, graduated high school at 16, was, was graduated Stanford by the time he was 18, was teaching classes in his early 20s, and then the military saw his talent and snatched him up, and he was one of the people that was instrumental in developing radar. Um, and not only was he brilliant, um, but he, was, he loved Jesus, and he, he gave, he'd get audited by the IRS almost every year because of the amount of money he gave away. They're like, we can't believe that people would actually give this amount of their income away. He was generous. He was kind. He was loving. He was intelligent. And at the end of his life, um, he may or may not have remembered who you were. Um, it's not supposed to be that way. And so, you know, we go through these things and we say, God, if, if you're good, why don't you do something? And I think, you know, it's good for us to remember that he has. It's good for us to remember that he has done something. It's good to remember that, that God joined us in our humanity. That Christ came and he walked among us as a human. And he experienced loss and he cried at Lazarus' death. And he, and he loved people. And he cared for their brokenness. And, and, and he showed us that our pain and our suffering is not in vain, but instead it has a purpose. It has the purpose of revealing the character of God to us. It has the purpose of showing us God's love. It has the purpose of developing us into the image of Jesus. He showed us all of these things, and he, and he lived a sinless life, and he went to that cross. Here's the other thing. He didn't just join us in our humanity. He didn't just experience our brokenness. He didn't just know what it was to be tempted. He didn't know just what it was to cry and weep and feel compassion for those who are taken advantage of. He didn't just join us in our emotions. But he took God's wrath on himself so that we could be freed from the consequences of the sin on this earth and in our own lives. He was the only one capable of doing it. 
The only one, uh, both God and man, capable of going to a place of, of uh, judgment and saying, wrath is no longer on me, it's no longer on you, but it, he's taking it on him. And then not just taking the consequences of sin, but then saying, now I'm going to move you out of darkness and into light, and I'm going to cause you to be someone that you've never been before. You used to worship yourself. You used to worship this world. You used to worship drugs. You used to worship sex. You used to worship money. You used to worship power. You used to worship whatever. You had false messiahs in your life. But he came and he said, I'm going to show you what a real messiah does. I'm a real messiah. What a real messiah does is he takes the consequences of your brokenness and he makes you whole. He gives you life. He gives you the air to breathe. He causes you to be new. He's a true Messiah. He has done something. And you know what else he's done? He said, not only am I going to save you, uh, not only am I going to come to you and remove you from your brokenness and make you whole, I'm also going to call you as an ambassador. And so I want you to live on this earth with purpose. And yes, you're going to suffer. Yes, you're going to go through difficulty. You're going to see people that you love go through things that you know it's not right. And you're going to give them hope. And you're going to be light. And you're going to be steadfast, not because you are those things, but because the spirit of God lives in you. And no matter what circumstance you're in, you're transformed and you bring life because life is in you because Christ is in you. He's done all that. And you know what? That's not it. He went further. He said, not only am I going to do all of that, I'm going to save, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to give you purpose, but I'm also going to promise you that I'm coming back. And when I come back, all the brokenness of this world will be done away with. Uh, the evil that has caused deception in your life and led other people that you know and love to walk a path that they shouldn't be walking and causing damage to others, I'm going to eradicate it. It's going to be done away with. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth and a place where these things are not part of life. And what we have in the chapter that we're starting today in verses in chapter 6 of Revelation through chapter 19 is how he's going to do it. And so let me pray. And I just, I just used 17 of my 35 minutes on that. Um, <laughs> Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are and what you do. We are so thankful for who you are and what you've done. That your son Jesus joined us in humanity. The Godhead three in one. The son came to save us. To take the consequences of sin. To remove us from wrath and to make us right and whole. Not only that, but you give us tremendous purpose in sharing you. Our lives are not lived in vain. Our pain and suffering is not, aren't things that have no purpose, but instead they're used to manifest your glory and to show other people what it is to be saved, to be new. And God, we thank you for the promise that you are going to de deal with sin and death and remove it and create a place that does not know those things. We look forward to that restoration in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so if you weren't with us, I got to do one more little bit of recap. I better do it quick. Um, Revelation chapter 5, if you weren't here with us a couple weeks ago, Revelation chapter 5, John is in the throne room in heaven. He sees the four living creatures, which are angelic beings. He sees the 24 elders, which are representative of uh, uh, saints throughout the ages who are in in heaven, Christians uh, that are in heaven, uh, representative of, of that group. And there's a scroll, and the scroll is sealed with seven seals, and and it's written on front and on back, which is unusual. Usually they were just written on the inside. And so because it's written on the outside, it's indicating that it's a deed. And what this deed is that no one can be found to open except for when the Lamb of God shows up is it's a deed of controlling the course of judgment. And nobody can open it except for the Lamb. And so here comes the Lamb, Christ, and he begins to open these seals. He is the one who has the right and the authority to execute God's judgment on the earth. Okay? And so that's what he's doing here. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. And so we have the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Some have tried to make this out to be Jesus. Um, Jesus does ride a white horse when he returns. That's actually predicted in the Old Testament, and it happens later in the book of Revelation. This is someone who is setting themselves up to look like Jesus. This is someone who is trying to act like Jesus. He has a bow. If you remember the Old Testament, the bow was given as a covenant or a promise of peace. And so this guy shows up with a promise of peace and he's given a crown. He's a ruler and he's a, so he's a political world ruler who goes out to conquer in order to conquer. And his goal is to unite people under a singular government where he is the head of it. And he is the one who is going to promise peace through this bow, this covenant. He is the one who's going to unite people. He's charismatic. He's, he's somebody you look at and you go, I really like that guy. I think I should follow him. But underneath everything he does is deception because he does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Instead, he sets himself up as such a Messiah. Uh, the prediction of this person happens in Daniel 9, chapter or, uh, chapter 9, verse 26. Uh, and so we view this person as the Antichrist. It's a man who's Satan's chief leader during the time of the Great Tribulation. Um, and it's important that phrase, Antichrist, you hear it and you might think Antichrist, he's against Christ, which is true. He is against Jesus, but it actually, in the Greek, it means another Messiah. So it's somebody who sets themselves up as, a savior, as someone who could give you life, as someone who, if you followed them, we could get this right. Okay. And so he sets himself up as that way. He sells himself as this Messiah and he is believed to be a better option than Jesus. He's a political leader who conquers uh, by uniting people against Christ. Okay, And so that, that's who this person is. Um, and we read in 1 John that many antichrists have shown up. We, there's a, in the scriptures the idea of the spirit of the antichrist. That, and what that is, is, is it's anything that you might worship other than Jesus. It's deceptive. It looks good. You think it's going to give you life. You think it's going to make you whole. Uh, you go down that path. You try it for a little while. And you go, well, that sure didn't work. And so it's presenting itself as another savior, another messiah, another way to find life. And during the time of the uh, the great tribulation this guy will lead through three and a half years of peace and then he's going to break that peace and we see that broken in verse three when he opened the second seal i heard the second living creature say come 
Another horse went out, a fiery red one. Its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. So this is a, mili a political military leader that shows up during the time of the tribulation. He is somebody who is working at the behest of Satan and the Antichrist. Um, he's mentioned later on in um, Revelation 12 as the red dragon, in Revelation 17 as the scarlet beast. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about who this will be and where it will come from. I, I'm, like I told you, I'm not going to do that. I, I just don't see a lot of point behind it. There's some educated guesses, but I think it's good to know that when you hear people give you those, they are educated guesses. It's conjecture. We don't know for certain, okay? Um, but what it should do, what it mostly should do for us is point us to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, uh, that the time of the great tribulation will see a series of wars and rumors of wars, the likes of which has not been seen on the earth, okay? And so it is going to be one war after another. I mean, like you won't be able to keep up with the number of people that are fighting with each other during this time, and you're going to be constantly hearing of new battles that could potentially be breaking out. Uh, and, and so we move from a political leader that unites people, tricks them, deceives them, breaks covenant with particularly the nation of Israel, and then war happens for this three and a half year period uh, as, as this second seal and rider shows up. And then the third rider um, here in verse five, it says, then he opened a third seal and I heard the living creature say, come. And I looked and there was a black horse. Its rider had a set set of scales in its hand. And then I heard something like the voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm oil or the wine. And so as war rages, um, we've experienced this a little bit, right? As war rages, um, economy slow, food production is hindered, um, and everything costs more, okay? The prices of things go through the roof. Um, they're outrageous. And what happens in this set of circumstances is people cannot afford to eat. Um, and the other thing to recognize is that as we go through this, you're going to see a lot of parallels between the, the siege and judgment of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Uh, so if you were to look at Ezekiel chapter 5 and read that, you would see a lot of similar language that God said is going to happen during the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians during this time of war and judgment. And so uh, the idea that people are going to be experiencing famine and, uh, and, and loss in this way, things get extra, um, exponentially more expensive as these wars rage. And so this is something that, uh, th that is going to happen. Uh, except it, unlike the case of Jerusalem with Babylon, this judgment is not restricted to one geographic area, but is worldwide. Um, everyone will be experiencing hunger. Everyone will be wondering where their next meal is coming from. Okay. Um, and then as that is happening, the fourth seal is open. In verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades, was follow Hades followed after him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals on the earth. And so this fourth rider, he brings continued war but, uh, and famine, but adds disease and wild beasts. Again, if you were to read Ezekiel chapter 14, you would see these four dangers, the sword, famine, dangerous animals, and plague. Uh, they're understood as God's righteous wrath towards sin. Um, God uses unlikely means at times to bring these judgments, right? So in 586, he used the Babylonians, and this 
case in the Great Tribulation, he's going to use the Antichrist and world powers to bring this judgment. Uh, this is hard for us to understand. Um, and, uh, and so we, we might have a hard time wrapping our minds around this. Uh, in many ways, God is, what he's doing here is he's turning people over to their desire for a Messiah other than Jesus. And so when, when, when God gives us over to our false gods, our false messiahs that we think we're going to find life in, it brings war, famine. Uh, the idea here is of animals consuming corpses um, and plague. Uh, those things are bound to happen. And in a real sense, that happened in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Like you can, the, the siege took place, the city fell, people were hungry, the, it resulted in, the, in cannibalism, um, they lost their children, uh, an, wild animals consumed their corpses, they had disease, all those things took place. Uh, this is something that is going to happen future as God's judgment of the entire world. Uh, but the other thing that we need to recognize is that in a spiritual sense, when you give yourself to a false messiah, you say, I'm going to turn myself over to this thing and worship it and try and find life in it. What it does is it causes a war inside of you. You recognize that this isn't actually giving me life, but I'm going to keep trying it, right? You find yourself battling other people. Instead of blessing other people, you're at war with other people when you give yourself to something other than Jesus. Uh, you recognize that there's a spiritual famine in your soul. You can't get full. No matter how much you give yourself to this false messiah, this false idea of life, it never fulfills. You're constantly in spiritual famine. And then you find yourself being consumed by other things as you give yourself over to the false messiah. Man, I'm, I'm battling with myself. I'm battling with other people. Um, I, I'm never actually spiritually nourished. Um, I'm being consumed by other things as I give myself to more and more false idols. Um, and then you recognize that there's a plague that's going on in your soul. You are sick. And the reason you're sick is because you've given yourself over to a false messiah. Instead of turning your life to Christ, you've turned your life to something else. And you experience the war inside yourself, the war with others. You experience the, the hunger of your soul never being satiated. You find yourself consumed by anything and everything that you could give yourself to. And you recognize that you're sick spiritually. Spiritually. And the great thing is, is that God has given you a way out. I've already told you what it is. We turn ourselves to Christ. We, f we trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are forgiven and made whole. And then we find life and purpose and meaning and hope and future in him. It says uh, in this passage here, the, these verses, that as this takes place, uh, Hades follows with this writer. Hades is uh, the realm of the unsaved dead. There's a whole lesson on what happens when you die. I don't have enough time to go into all of it. But if you're not in Christ and you die, you go to a place called Hades, which is the realm of the unsaved dead that awaits judgment. Okay? And you know you're, you know you're, you know you're doomed and you await judgment. That's the realm of the unsaved dead. Jesus, uh, he talks about also people that are saved when they die. They go to, in the story of the rich, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, that you go to Abraham's bosom. That there's a place where you immediately enter into God's presence. Paul says that if we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And so we immediately go into God's presence. We still await the new heavens and the new earth that will take place in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, but, uh, but immediately you're in God's presence. Uh, we also see here that a fourth of the population of the earth dies and most are taken to Hades to await the final judgment of the unsaved.
so you have those first four and the riders that go along with it. And you just have to look at this and go, God is serious about sin. He controls the judgment of sin. He controls the current and final judgment of sin. And if you want to be saved, trust in the true Messiah, not a false Messiah. And then he opens the fifth seal, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. And so this fifth seal, it brings us the understanding that when people turn to a false Messiah, they persecute followers of the Messiah, Jesus, particularly those who are willing to stand up and say, you are not actually living. You're actually dead. Um, you have given yourself to a false messiah. You are deceived. You believe that you're alive, but you do not have life because there's no life in yourself. There's only one source of life. His name is God. He manifested himself to us in his son, Jesus. And if you want to have life, you go to him. Nowhere else has it. Everything else is smoke and mirrors. And if you're willing to stand up and tell people that, then persecution will take place. Uh, if you're willing to step into a culture that maybe has a, a different religion, and that religion says that if you want to be right with God, you have to work your way to God. It's on you. Work your way to God. Clean yourself up, and maybe he'll be happy with you. And you say, that's not who God is. God isn't looking for you to clean yourself up. And it's not maybe would he be happy with you. He has come to you. You don't work your way to him. Christ came to you, and he has saved you and cleansed you. You don't cleanse yourself yourself, he cleanses you. It's all of his grace. It's, you don't bring anything to the table other than a mess, and he cleans it up. He gives you everything that you need, and that's who God really is. Not somebody waiting for you to get it right, but somebody who longs to make you right as you trust him. And if you're willing to proclaim that, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be trouble. Uh, the souls that are, are martyred during this time, they're, they're seen as, uh, as under the altar. It's a, that's a, a reference to Exodus 29, verse 12. And those who are martyred for proclaiming Jesus as the true Messiah, they're seen sort of like a sacrifice. Their blood is a sacrifice given uh, on Christ's behalf to the world. D did you know that uh, you're not your own? Do you know that you've been purchased with a price? And because you've been purchased with a price, that you and I as Christians should live our lives in a way that if God demanded our lifeblood, we would give it? If God called us to, to lay down, and he does, every day that we would lay down our life in order for him to lead us. But it could come to this place. And they're seen as this sacrifice. And, and, and they're seen as that there's more to come. Uh, that they're, they're to rest a little while longer. They've been dressed in white in Christ's righteousness. They're to rest a little while longer. There's going to be more that are going to go through this. And they cry out for God to act and bring justice. Uh, this reminds us of Habakkuk. If you've never read the little book of Habakkuk, it's following uh, the, uh, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And Habakkuk is asking God, what are you doing? Like, how are you using these horrible people to judge us? And, and so it's a very similar cry here from them. Lord, the one who is holy and true, when are you going to judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Uh, did you understand the other part of this is they're looking for God to avenge their blood? But, but they're also 
You have to understand that Christ's blood has actually saved people that would persecute. Maybe, maybe you've done this. Maybe you've pushed back against the church. Maybe you've fought the Jesus. Maybe you've lived your life in opposition to him. Did you know that his blood has actually purchased you and saved you? And no, vengeance is no longer something that will be carried out on you, but instead you're free from condemnation. We learn more about these martyrs in Revelation chapter 7. They are uh, saved during the time of tribulation and killed for their faith during the time of this great tribulation. Then the, seven, the sixth seal, he says, Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by, the, by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. All of that language is, is used in a way that would remind you of the Old Testament. Uh, it would remind you of divine visitation and it would remind you of God's judgment, okay? So like God's divine visitation for the purpose of judgment. That's what all that language is intended to remind you of. In verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and nobles and generals and rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come who is able to stand. And so, again, this, this sixth seal, it brings a series of natural disasters that causes humanity to recognize that they're under a time of divine visitation and judgment from God. They wonder who is able to stand in the light of the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, these words, they echo what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. I'd encourage you to read Daniel chapter 9, Matthew chapter 24 for more understanding on, on these passages. Um, but if you were to read that passage, it sounds almost exactly like what Jesus said. Uh, would happen before his second coming and before the great tribulation, or during the great tribulation and before his second coming. Um, they remind us of passages like Ezekiel 19, Isaiah chapter 2, of divine visitation for the purpose of judgment. Um, and so we, we understand that before Jesus' second coming, the entire world will be deceived by false messiahs, in particular one false messiah we call the Antichrist, thus bringing about a series of judgments that follow a pattern similar to the judgment of Judea or Jerusalem by Babylon. It's very, very similar to what God does with the nation of Judea um, and the city of Jerusalem. But instead of one location, it's the judgment of the whole world. Okay? And so as you look at this, the takeaway, what is essential to walk away from a passage like this is a profound understanding that unbelief in Jesus for belief in another Messiah is a serious mistake. It is a serious mistake to think that you can find life and meaning and purpose and salvation and righteousness, all the things that God freely gives to us. It is a mistake to think that you could come up with them on your own, and it is a mistake to think that you could find them anywhere other than Jesus. You cannot save yourself. No one else can save you. I can't save myself. No one else can save me. Only Christ is the true Messiah who has the capability of doing that. Because he is God, and because he has given his life to purchase me. No one else can do that. No one else has done that. 
And so we see the uniqueness of Christ. Uh, and what we, the other thing we have to recognize is that in worshiping something other than Jesus as the Messiah, we break the first commandment. We, put, we, we worship a false god, and when you worship a false god, you are sure to break the rest of God's commandments. If he's not first, you will break the rest of the commandments every single time. Um, and that's true for us as we walk as Christians. You could put something in front of Jesus for a period of your life, and you will break the ten. You will break all God's commandments. You will, we will, you will live your life in opposition to Him, because it is only through worshiping Him and receiving what only He can give us that we're then able to bless each other. And so, it's a very serious thing to worship a false Messiah. It's a very serious thing to have a false god. And we also have to understand that from a passage like this, that sin, uh, God will not leave it unpunished. And he won't. He's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's not going to just forget about it. Uh, someone's paying for my sin. The question is, am I paying for it? Or is Christ paying for it? Am I going to bear the consequences and the weight of my sin? Do I, do I think that I have what it takes to be right with God and then incur his wrath? Or do I trust that Jesus has taken the consequences of my sin and that wrath is no longer something that is known to me, but Christ has taken it for me? Who's paying the consequences of your sin? It's not just going to get swept under the rug. Either I'm paying for it or Jesus is paying for it. Who do I trust? Who do I think is capable? Who do I believe is able? And so when we see the world around us falling apart and dying, when we see pain and suffering in our own lives or the lives of others, what we have to respond with is a bold and loving proclamation that Jesus the Messiah was crucified to pay for sin. You want to be free? You want to be whole? You want to be new? You want to have purpose? You want an eternity that cannot be taken from you? There's one who can give you that. There's one that can save you. There's one that can free you. There's one that can restore your relationship with God. There's one that can make you new. There's one that can make you whole. And there's one that will secure your eternity. It's not me. It ain't you. And it's nobody you've ever met other than Jesus. And so when we see the judgment of sin, that is the bold proclamation that we make. Jesus is the Messiah who has saved you. He's freed you. He's made you new. He's given you purpose. He secures your eternity. Nobody else can do it. So will you trust him? Let me pray. Father, this morning we thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you that your son is trustworthy. That his death on the cross is not something that we have to question, but we know. We know and have come to believe that your son Jesus is both God and Messiah, and Savior, that he is Lord, and that he deserves to be trusted. He's worthy to be trusted. And then when I give my life to him, when I believe in him and trust in what he's done for me, I'm freed from the consequences of wrath. I'm saved. I'm made new. I'm given purpose. And God, thank you for the eternity that you secure for us. Thank you that our suffering and our pain that we go through is not something that we, uh, we don't suffer in vain, but instead it has a, the, the purpose of transforming us, of making us new, and of making us long for it. Jesus, would you come back this afternoon? <laughs> like, that would be great.
We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.